Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what does the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it. <laughs> it's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman about her road to success, the challenges, and the victories along the way. Today, my guest is Priya Krishna, a journalist for places like Bon Appetit and the New York Times, and she's the author of a brand new cookbook, Indianish, that she did in conjunction with her mother. Not Indian, as you heard, but more on that later. Welcome, Priya. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm so, so happy you're here in, for so many reasons. Um, but first, the book. Like, as a cook, I appreciate it. And as a mom, I think I appreciate it even more. As a cook, the, re- the recipes look really doable. Mm-hmm. You worked so hard to not have too many spices. And yes. so that I didn't look at the list and go, uh, turn the page, turn the page. <laughs> so that was great. They fit into my, like, my worldview and exactly what I want to eat right now. But perhaps the more lasting feeling I have is love for you because of your love for your mother. And I have two kids. I hope one day that in whatever they do, they write things like, everybody says that their mother's the best, but actually my mother is the best. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what do you think distinguishes between like people who say their mother's the best and your mother who you worked with as sort of your co-author on this cookbook? I mean, I recognize that everyone's moms are the best to them, but I really do feel like what sets my mother apart is that she was a trailblazer in so many ways sort of before uh, as a woman, it was like almost cool to do these things. Like before we were talking about breaking the glass ceiling, before we were having discussions about whether women can do it all, my mom was just quietly breaking the glass ceiling and doing it all and wasn't sort of asking for recognition. She was she was just doing that. It was just how she knew to exist. And so when all of these um, these these sort of movements and these these books started coming out, I had this realization, like, this is what my mom has been doing all along. She's sort of this sneaky genius. <laughs> uh, and what she was doing was she was working as a software engineer for an airline. Is that right? Yeah, she was working in the airline industry. She developed... Um, what like one of her one of her claims to fame in my mind is when you go to the airport and you use like the self-service check-in machine she was on the team that developed the software for those self-service check-in machines which have really revolutionized airports i mean it's made my life much faster yeah. and easier i have to say and at the same time the doing it all part involved cooking because you grew up with a, a mom who was a great cook did you think she was a great cook back then I knew she was a good cook, but I was sort of angsty in the way that kids are angsty and are like, I'm sick of your cooking. I want to have pizza for dinner. But I knew in the back of my mind, I knew my mother was a better cook than others. Like I would go to other people's houses and be like, my mom is definitely a better cook. She also, (laughs) you know, she really you could tell she was so passionate about cooking. Like there was just she would get into this zone when she was home from work. She'd change out of her work clothes, pour herself a glass of wine and stand in front of the stove. And you could tell that was her happy place. And, I mean, what was the difference between what those other moms were cooking and, and what your mom was doing? I mean, I would go to friends' places and, you know, they'd be boiling pasta and adding, like, store-bought pasta sauce and then serving that with, like, some garlic bread and steamed broccoli. Like, it was very simple. Um, whereas, you know, my mom was 
making us sag paneer, but she would sub out the paneer for feta because she discovered feta in Greece and fell in love with it. She was using roti as a sort of charred, crispy crust for pizza. Um, and this is how she <laughs> indulged you, I feel, because you're yes. like, I want pizza. And she's like, okay, fine. You are not getting, you know, pizza f- like takeout pizza and frozen pizza or American pizza, you're going to have pizza my way. Exactly. Exactly. It was her, it was her way of like sort of rituifying all of these American dishes we wanted so badly. And that became sort of a foundation for a lot of her cooking, right? I mean, absorbing influences, not just from America, but from her travels around the world, because being in the airline business, she tra- it seems like you guys traveled a lot. Yeah. Um, we had this amazing deal through her work in which all of us could stand by for free on any flight. So we would pack our bags from multiple climates, show up to the airport, <laughs> see what flight we could get on, whether it was to Denver, Colorado or Miami, Florida. And just, and, and sometimes we would pack our bags, go to the airport, spend all day at the airport and then just come home empty, <laughs> like without having gone anywhere. But um, yeah, we traveled all the time. I feel so so lucky that, you know, my mom not only, you know, got these perks of working in the travel business, but she was really passionate about it. And even when my parents didn't have a lot of money, they really prioritized travel because they thought that was important for my sister and I to see the world. And that's because they came, well, your mother came from halfway around the world and your father at some point. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd love to hear the story of how your parents uh, met, because that's a story that you were asked when you were growing up and it was, it kind of bugged you. Yeah, my my parents um, were an arranged marriage. Um, They basically, um, how it usually goes in India is that, you know, family members sort of know like, oh, so-and-so has a son, they're about this age, so-and-so has a daughter, they're about this age. And I think it was one of my mom's cousins and my dad's sister, they knew each other. And so, you know, my mom had met a couple of guys and my dad has met, had met a couple of women. And actually, my dad had come to India like he was working in the U.S., but he'd come to India for two months with the explicit purpose of finding a wife and marrying her and returning to the U.S. How old was he? Uh, my dad was 24. My mom was 20. So they were I mean, they were really young and they met. Um, and then two weeks later, they were married. And I asked my mom a little while ago for a different story why she knew my dad was the one and she was just like he seemed reasonable like he seemed like (laughs) someone I could marry and it's so funny hearing this from my parents who are these both really intensely like they love heavily researching things before they do them like they're super rational people that they chose the person they were going to spend the rest of their life with in like a matter of hours that is um great intuition because in fact they're a great match they are i mean i really do it's it's one of those opposites attract situations like where my dad is sort of super extrovert like kooky friends with everyone my mom is very, is like a lot more quietly confident and um just a little bit more introverted and they definitely play off each other nicely and do you have feelings about the the process and that Indian way of finding a mate? Um, it's really funny. I, of course, grew up think I thought it was totally bizarre. Um, and now living in New York, it's so funny. I have like a bunch of friends who are single and they're like, I would love it if your parents <laughs> could set me up with a nice Indian boy. Yeah. <laughs> like, please bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think one of the things... I've read you say is, you know, your mother just had a longer term view, right? I mean, it it was about, um, it was about the kids. I mean, there's a lot of things that came before love. Yeah. I think what's really interesting about my parents' marriage and about, I think, arranged marriage in general is I don't think my parents see their love as this big whirlwind romance. I think it's more of a partnership. And I think one thing I've realized is that I don't know if like, if movies and sort of Western conceptions of love take into account the importance of marriage being, you know, a partnership. Right. Cause you, you had your own sort of passion for the rom-coms. Yes. I still love, I love rom-coms. I devour them. <laughs> what do you think now that Netflix has so many of them? Like you could actually have, you know, one a night at the rate that they're going. I've watched pretty much all of the ones, like the ones that come up on Netflix from the two thousands and the nineties. I've seen them. And then the new ones, I watch all of them. <laughs> And what do you what do you think of that idealized view of love? Like, does that still speak to you? It does, but I think 
I sort of go into it eyes wide open. I used to watch these movies and sort of see it as like a rubric of what I needed to do to find love. And now I'm more just, I'm able to remove it from reality a little bit more. Although you have found some love. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I have like a lovely partner. Um, you, have an, you have a partner who is an extraordinary pastry chef. Yeah. I mean, not in the real world, but like in the world of video. Yes, yes. He is super passionate about baking. And I feel very lucky that there is always cookie dough in our house. And things rising and yeah, long-term yeah. projects. There's and always fresh bread. I, yeah, I got very lucky. So, okay, more on that later. But uh, so you're, we were talking about your parents coming from so far and being from a culture that's quite far and moving to the States with the expectation of um, starting a life here. But they also had the expectation that they would be surrounded by family. Um, can you tell me the, the moment uh, that has really shaped and changed your life that was part of your family's history and story? Yeah, and I think this is a moment that, you know, I didn't fully recognize had such a big impact on my parents' life, but it was when my maternal grandparents passed away. Um, basically, they were living in India, and the plan was for them to move to the U.S. and basically, you know, live with our family and take care of my sister and me because my parents couldn't afford um, childcare and, but they both really wanted to work. Um, and we were living in Nashua at the time in New Hampshire, in New Hampshire. And they very suddenly, um, they were both like perfectly healthy on the younger side. They passed away really suddenly in a car accident in India and our lives, I, I don't remember this. I was two years old, but our lives, I guess, just ground to a halt. Um, like the, every plan that my parents had just revolved around their parent, like my mom's parents being in the U S and when I think back, like my, my mom doesn't even talk about that. And when I, the, I recently got my dad to talk about it and he said it was the first time in his life that he felt like truly hopeless. Um, and so what ended up happening was my mom, she has, um, a few brothers and they were all living in various parts of the country and everyone just up and packed their bags and moved to Dallas, where my mom's youngest brother, Sharad, was living because um, my mom's parents had told her if anything ever happens, like, we want you and your brothers to all be together. And it was it was willed. I mean, right, it was, or it was it just a conversation? I don't think it had been codified, but I think it's something that my mom, my mom's mom had explicitly told my mother because my mother's, my mom's the oldest of all of the siblings. So it was sort of, it was her job to make sure that the siblings were all together. And my mom was the only one with kids at the time. Um, but yeah, so we moved to Dallas. And it, I wonder we, if there's any conversation about the other, because people could have moved to New Hampshire. I mean, well, so as, as the story goes, my parents basically went to visit my uncle and aunt in Dallas, and they did this road trip around Texas. And my dad said that by the end of the road trip, they had fallen in love with the state so much that they were like, okay. And he's <laughs> never fallen out of love with it. Like he wears a, a Texan hat. He loves hat. it. He just loves Texas. <laughs> okay. What do you think like called to him so strongly? I think he loved the, war the, the friendliness. I think Texans, you know, they have this reputation of being like crass and, you know, conservative, but I think Texans are very open people. They're very warm, friendly people, especially in the bigger cities. Um, he loved the climate. My dad hates cold weather. And, you know, coming from India, the climate in Texas is a lot similar. So he loved that. He loved that um, he loved that the cost of living was inexpensive there versus, you know, what you could get in New Hampshire. My parents were going to school in Boston, but could only afford to live in New Hampshire, basically. Wow. So they commuted. <laughs> That's far. Yeah. Um, and it just it just sort of checked all the boxes for them. And yeah, I don't think my parents will ever leave Texas. And so your mother managed to corral, which I think that is a superpower. We were yeah, talking it, about it her, you know, range of superpowers, and she has many. But I think this one of actually gathering of a grieving family to be in one place and to uproot their lives and replant them in Texas is kind of extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean, I think about the 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 notion of doing that now is just is totally wild to me. And this would have been like around this, like them being the same age as my sister and me were. And that I, I can't even imagine being able to do that. My mom says that she was thankfully, she and her brothers were all in a place where they had a skill set that wasn't necessarily 
pegged to one city, but like, gosh, like I, the fact that I grew up around this enormous family with all of my cousins that like single-handedly has shaped my life and my values more than anything else. So, so yeah. I want, I want to hear about that because there's 30 of you, 40 of you. I mean, some, so I, many of us, so many of you. <laughs> <laughs> so how many aunts and uncles do you have in the Dallas area? Um, all right, let's see. We've got Athol Mama and Rajdamami, Gabu Mama, Sinithami, Sonyami, Pintu Mama, my parents, obviously, and then Nana Nani, who are Sangeeta Mami's parents. So I guess it's, we have, uh, how many was that? Wow, I just lost count. I think it's about eight, about eight, like, parents and then all of their children. And then we have sort of extended family. Like, we have my dad's brother and his wife that live in Houston and they come into town often. And then we also have some cousins who live in Michigan, but they're often in town too. So it feels like a much bigger family and it's only getting bigger and bigger as people get married and, you know. So what was that like? You know, I mean, I think that you said it's like having eight parents. Yeah. And I'm as close to them as, as my parents. Like I go home to Dallas and of course, my first priority is eating a meal at my mom's house. But then I'm in the car going to all of my aunts and uncles' houses houses, and just dropping in. Um, I'll call them for advice. I like it, it really is like having I feel like it's so funny. I see other people and their relationships, their uncles and aunts and cousins is somewhat sort of acquaintance like and distant. And that's never been the case for me. My cousins are extent they're my brothers and sisters my uncles and aunts are like parents and somehow you exist like a one giant amoeba yes and we i told you this we go on these big vacations every year um very hard to find like a locale that works for a party of 30 but somehow my aunt Sangita and sonia have figured it out every year <laughs> so you go with 30 of you and do fights ever break out or is it really yeah, yes, yes. The fights do break out. They do. Um, what are the top? Like, what is it over? Well, <laughs> last year was over something really silly. Uh, we were like on this boat, and uh, the like the person who was cooking at the boat came out and was like, "If you all have any feedback for the chef, please let us know." And I had feedback. I thought you know, like the meat was a little bit overcooked, so I just like I went and was like, "Yeah, the, I thought the meat was overcooked," and the chef took enormous offense to this and half of my family was like why would you criticize him and the other half was like well why'd he ask for criticism if he didn't want it (laughs) and it became this whole thing where some people were like on were like defending Georgie and the other the chef and the other half were like no like Georgie needs to be better and (laughs) it was this whole thing so they're like very silly fights but (laughs) things like that and what are some places that are great to take 30 people at a time? Like, where do you um, go? <laughs> so we found, I think the all-time most successful vacation was my dad found this house in Umbria um, near Tuscany. And it was a big, big house with a pool. And one summer we just rented that house for 10 days. And it came with a pizza oven. So we would make pizza in the morning. This, like, lady would come and make biscotti. It had its own little wine fridge with wine, like, You could take day trips to wine country, to Assisi. And so, you know, everyone could kind of do their own thing. But we all had this centralized place. And, and, you know, you would wake up and you'd just see these beautiful rolling hills before you. It was it was idyllic. And so in New York, I don't know how many of you are in New York, but does it feel sort of lonely? Like, is it almost like having a ghost limb, you know, having family at a distance? Yeah, it does. It does feel a little bit sad. Um, my cousin Isha is in New York, and I and I don't see her often enough. And I sort of I've started to realize that part of the reason us cousins saw each other so much is because our parents made such an effort. And so it's kind of up to our generation to similarly make an effort and make sure that we all stay really close. How possible does that feel? It it feels harder and harder every day. Um, I think right now I've settled for I just need to be near some family. I, I I understand that it probably won't be everyone, but I'd like to my kids to grow up near my sister and my brother-in-law. Um, and then at least maybe like one or two other 
Cousins just as much family as I can possibly have around me. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so you wrote the book with your with your mom, but your dad plays a really great mm-hmm. great role. He has his passions, and your you know your aunts pop up. What was their reaction to you doing a book with a family recipes? They were so easy and willing to play along. Like they didn't ask a lot of questions. You know, I would be like, I need this recipe and they'd spring into action and they'd do it. And I think they didn't realize what was happening until they came over during the photo shoot and we had all the photos of their dishes printed out on the walls and this and they're all like artsy and just beautifully styled. And I think that was the moment they were like, oh my God, this is real. It's happening. (laughs) Um, And then my aunt Sonia, her famous chicken recipe was in the New York Times last week. And she was, she like, I I just, I think they just don't even know what to make of this. (laughs) (laughs) Are they in Dallas? Is the family known? Because some families are known like, oh my God, they're the ones who have the great cake or the great, you know, chicken or the great vegetables. Like, is that your family? I think our family, like people know our family for being really close. Like I feel like we are just sort of this ironclad group and everyone knows that like, that like we kind of travel as a pack and we all look out for each other. And I, and I, you know, there's a bigger Indian community in Dallas, but like, I've, you know, there are very few, like we sort of make up a really good part of that community. <laughs> so people just kind of know the the Krishna L. Hens's like... <laughs> Watch out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But people know my mom is really well known in the community for being a good cook, like, and a good hostess. People really know that about her. And she has some rules for hosting. Yes. Yeah. Some very good rules. You would think I'd be a better host, but really my my mother is just second to none. What what makes her such a great host? She's very good at making it look very effortless. You know, she cooks our Thanksgiving dinner in a matter of hours. (laughs) How does she do that? She did what she did bones the turkey. She only uses the breast. She, I mean, well, we don't. She have, makes it all ahead. We don't, we don't have turkey at all. Um, oh, so maybe that, that helps. Yes. Um, uh, but I mean, she just is so good at knowing um, what to pr- what to make ahead, what to do a la minute. Um, she always has like at five o'clock, no matter what she's prepping, she'll have a glass of wine. Like she knows she has this sort of like amazing internal clock for like when it's time to move from appetizers to dinner. And I feel like that is something you almost can't teach. She's developed that intuition. And why are you a crappy host? S or not crappy. I I I don't want to. I think I just get very stressed. Like that stuff is not intuitive to me. I'm like, when, when do I transition people to dinner? You know, (laughs) like how much wine do I know how to make? And I, I think in this way, my mom and dad make a really amazing team because my mom will do the hors d'oeuvres and she'll get dinner already. And then when people come over, my dad will open the door. He's in charge of drinks. He'll pour like the wine and he's really good at making cocktails. And while my mom is like distracted in the kitchen, my dad is sort of this like insane conversationalist. And so he'll, he's really good at getting the party going. Like, you know, like bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, those like party starters. My dad would be so good at that. <laughs> That's so good. Or like Carla Hall, Carla Hall before the chew, like yeah, the dancing. Exactly. Everybody gets in the mood. And that's your dad. Yes, that is 100% my dad. <laughs> and But maybe you just don't try that often. Because you're not, you have a cookbook and you've done a lot around food, but you're not, like cooking isn't your skill. Storytelling and capturing these recipes. Yes, totally. And appreciating their value. But I've tried to I tried to host more parties. Now that I now that I have a partner who can bake, I'm like, well, if dinner's a disaster, dessert will be great. <laughs> you just need you need a cousin yeah. to come along and, and you know yeah. do the warm up act, and then the three of you. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's perfect. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, Priya's career in writing and uh, some more thoughts about this extraordinary cookbook, Indianish. So stay with us. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. 
Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalt cave-aged cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santigade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is Priya Krishna, who's written this amazing book called Indianish. It's a fun title, Indianish, and it started out as kind of like just a placeholder. Yep. <laughs> what was the story of the title of that book? Um, I, I, you know, at first when I was approached to write this book, I just, I didn't want the word Indian in it. I didn't want this book to be relegated to, you know, a, the ethnic or international section of a bookstore because I felt like my story was so fundamentally American. Um, what part of your story feels so fundamentally American to you? You know, the idea of uh, a household where there's first gen mixed in with second gen and being someone that feels very, that's like a product of American culture, but, you know, is very much steeped in my Indian heritage that feels like something that so many Americans can relate to. Obviously, we're, we're a country of immigrants, so. <laughs> For now, yeah. <laughs> and so um, so you rebelled against the notion of Indian in the, in the title. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I got to that point that I feel like a lot of authors do when they write a proposal where they're like, this is, I just, I can't. Working title. Yeah, I can't think of a title. The rest of the proposal's fine. Cannot think of a title, but like, I promise that I will come up with a better one. And then I would go into these meetings and people would be like, no, we love Indianish. Do not change it. Like, we will buy this book with this title and this title only. And it was really it was really shocking to me. But I came to realize that Indianish was actually the perfect descriptor for this food and for my family and for the, the life that we've lived in the U.S. Right. The ish being the, the American and everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just like the multicultural influences and the fact that we listen to Bollywood music and top 40 hits. Just everything about who we are is is Indian, but it's also American. And those things don't need to be mutually exclusive from one another. And so you came to terms with the the title more than that. You're like, you're super happy about yeah, it. Yeah. And then, you know, it also helped that, you know, several publishing companies were like, SEO wise, this is great. <laughs> this will play well with search terms. <laughs> really? Because when you type in like Indian to Amazon, this will be one of the top because it has Indian in the title, which I wasn't even thinking about. And they said, because it has the hyphen in it too, that will also help. I didn't know hyphens were helpful. Did hyphens helpful? Because it because in search terms, people if people look up Indian, um, it like my book will come up versus if it was Indianish and there was no hyphen, it would not come up as a search result. Was not thinking about this at all. Right. Good for somebody else yeah. to be doing that for you on your <laughs> behalf. That's great. Um, but it does play into like a whole series of pet peeves that you have that I just want to like dive into a little bit mm -hmm. because. Um, you were talking to Nick Sharma and you were saying, you know, where your books live on Amazon, mm -hmm. both of you, uh, is really irritating to you. You know, why can't this book be an American book? It feels to you like an American story. Yeah. I mean, I put American in the subtitle because I hope that it's just sort of my hope that bookstores will put it in the American section. Do you think we're far away from that? I mean, do you think there's just a lack of understanding about what America is? Like, what do you think it speaks to in the cultural moment that you, you know, you wouldn't be under American? Yeah, I, th I think we're, I think we're still pretty pretty far from it. Um, I you know still I still think that most food magazines when they are talking about American food, they're talking about Western food. I don't think that 
they, a lot of them sort of see this food or, you know, the food that like Roy Choi cooks, for example, as something that would fall under the umbrella of American when like this is as American as it gets. Right. Roy Choi being um, a chef in LA who has Kogi and he did a mashup uh, and he's done many things, but a mashup of like tacos and, and Korean food. So uh, I think it provokes such an interesting conversation about like what is America? Like is America this heritage notion that is defined by a certain set of years and a certain set of people? You know, like why is that? I mean, it's interesting because like American food is fundamentally immigrant food. It, everyone at, at various every points, like Germans are immigrants, Italians are immigrants. Like we see things like apple pie and hamburgers as these fundamentally American dishes, but they're not. They came from abroad, just like all the, the Indian food that I cook in here. Um, I just feel like I desperately want people to know that dal chowl is as straightforward and easy to make as, you know, your grilled chicken breasts. And, and what is that? Dal chowl is lentils and rice, and it's, you know, it's the quintessential Indian comfort food, in my opinion. And so um, one of the one of the things you're searching for is to normalize Indian flavors, right? Mm-hmm. And to not make it something that seems so foreign. Yeah, you know, I notice a lot of food magazines will talk about, you know, non, non-white foods, basically, only in the context of, like, here's this, like, project of making pho or making a bowl of ramen but it's like no why don't we why can't food magazines have a package of salads and that salad package included a caesar salad alongside a fatouche alongside a kachumber which is the um sort of cucumber tomato onion salad in my cookbook um that's sort of what i'm hoping for and it's not just food magazines i assume i mean it's it's everything i mean it's grocery stores it's um i mean it's it's any media i mean it's any way that food is is communicated, you know, what I listen in. Totally. One thing that I was so, um, I was just amazed by was I was in Texas recently and I noticed that at our local grocery store, HEB, which is a very popular grocery store in Texas, um, like things like tortillas and salsa, it's not in like a ethnic aisle. It's just intermixed with the breads because there are so many people of Hispanic descent it would be almost disrespect like they're the majority of the people shopping at this place so like why would we relegate theirs to an aisle like the tortillas need to be front and center and it was it was just this very delightful moment and so what do you think those crossover ingredients are uh, for Indian so-called Indian food I mean in your book so for example if someone was going to take something that was pretty straightforward and was a great reflection of your childhood and the way you see American food moving forward. Like what would those uh, dishes be? That were a reflective of my childhood. Oh. I mean, yeah, dal chowl is definitely one and related kitchery, which is a lentil and rice stew. But the important thing is you're, you're cooking them together and the starches from the rice and the pot liquor from the lentils marry so beautifully. Um, I, w- I have no idea how to pronounce it, but I love the look of it and the technique. Chonk. Chonk, yes. Oh, my gosh. I feel it, like if it there's... It looks like, you know, it looks like a Roy Lichtenstein <laughs> word, you know, because there's something about the letter shapes that just looks yes. like, um, a, you know, like a comic book. Chonk! Totally. So what is chonk? Totally. And it almost like, is almost like an onomatopoeia, like the sound when the spices hit the pan. It could be sort of (laughs) chonk-esque. But it's basically a very fundamental technique um, in Indian cuisine where you temper spices or herbs in oil or ghee to bring out their aromatics and flavor and sort of finish a dish and lend a bit of texture. And it is sort of by far, I think if you take nothing else away from the book, it's just remember chonk and use it in your daily life you can put it over a dollar a subsi but you can also put it over a we put it over a carrot salad I've put it over nachos I've put it over some lamb noodles and over ramen and it is just one of those all-purpose so you say it as if it has a set um list of ingredients does it it doesn't it It doesn't it can be any any combination of spices or herbs. In the book, I teach two different chonks. One is 
has cumin seeds and red chili powder and dried red chilies. And that's sort of a North Indian chonk is what we're calling it. And then the other one is mustard seeds and curry leaves. And that leans a little bit more South Indian. And we found that, you know, if nothing else, like one of those chonks fits in, you know, you can find a use of, for at least one of them in, in, in most dishes. I mean, it's a little irresistible. Like, you know, Emerald had bam and you're going to have chunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I really hope so. I, well, I've been really amazed at how much people have latched on to this concept. And I'm glad because it is. It is an amazing concept. Well, it just sounds like you could do anything plain and simple, right? I could, I could sear something. I could have some rice. And all of a sudden, I can have so much flavor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, just from Bloom Spices. Yes. And there's always the question in my mind, am I supposed to like do something with the spices beforehand? And what if it's too late? And, you know, for me, who's, I'm always um, a little out of sync with my cooking. The idea that you can do something at the end that can add so much flavor. I feel like that is an absolute gift to the disorganized. Totally. Cook. and I And I'm totally someone who... I don't go into cooking with a plan. I'm very much like making different components, putting them all together. And it's really nice knowing that if something doesn't quite come together or if the flavor is just not quite there, I can make a chonk, pour it over the top, and it will always taste delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a a time, I guess, when you were little, when you were kind of embarrassed about the the food that you ate growing up. And was that and you say in the book that you had these tremendous insecurities. Were those things related at all, like the, your family being foreign and the food and that? Or were the insecurities born of other things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was embarrassed. It's, it's annoying when your parents, you're going through these things that are very specific to American culture and your parents just don't understand and can't relate and can't really give specific advice like you know when it comes to dating dating is not in India like it is in the U.S. and those were really hard conversations to have I'm curious how did they go I mean because your mother sounds well your father sounds not going so he'd do it from like it's all gonna be good and your you know your mother being more thoughtful she just it was hard to project because it's not an experience they had I guess I mean technically we weren't allowed to date but that didn't prevent my sister and I from dating and then it just ended up being this very awkward situation in which they didn't really want to know, and we didn't really want to tell them. And, I, you know, I feel like I wasn't comfortable talking about dating until, like, after college, I think. That's a long run. It's a really long time. Yeah. But I think my mom would probably agree. I feel like we both became comfortable with talking about dating after college. <laughs> so you and your mom, you know, you think she is the best, the best. But there's still some tension in there, right? Like, nothing's... Yeah. I mean, she... I mean... The, 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 what happened when I was growing up as, as as smart and as in tune as my mom was like there were just things she didn't get like you know one year I didn't get asked to prom and she just did, I mean the, like you know if and that ever went. happened to my kid I would like understand the devastation and my mom just like didn't just it just she just didn't understand like she didn't know how to react or respond so she and my dad were just very awkward about it um and you felt terrible. And I felt so terrible. But like now I know that if my, yeah, if my kid doesn't get asked to prom, at least I can be like, I didn't either. <laughs> right. <It's fine>. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have that to draw on. Yeah. That, like the sad times of. Right. Yeah. And all these like very class, like things that happen to, you know, American kids, like even just little things like um, going on a field trip and not having someone to sit next to on the bus, just like little, like just those little, those little things, those little experiences, um, making the transition from middle school to high school, you know, it just, and also just having a group of friends who all, all of my friends ate the same thing. All of their parents knew each other. They all went to the same synagogue and my, my parents just were not part of that and I think that was that was really hard for me I bet because you're like why can't I be one of them right being Jewish probably looked really good at that time I mean I attended so many Passover seders and I remember at my friend's bar mitzvahs I like had memorized so many of like the port the Torah portions (laughs) it was just like it was just like the way that I could fit in with with my friends I remember I tried to keep uh keep Passover uh, keep because, kosher, or, or yeah, keep, or no, sorry, keep uh, Passover. So I like ate matzah for lunch instead of bread every day for a week, and my mom was so confused. <laughs> <laughs> and 
How does that sort of feeling of being an outsider from then now translate in in doing this book? And I feel like you're you're on a mission, right? I mean, it's partly like your mom made great food, mm-hmm. but you also want to sort of bring change about in America. Like you have, you want to normalize this food and you don't want it to be siloed off in Indian and you don't want to be, what is it, Southeast Asian. I mean, you don't want it, you don't want to get stuck in a category. Um, And you had this earlier experience. Are these two things related at all? Do you feel like much less of an outsider now? Do you feel like, like yeah, globally connected or yeah definitely I mean I think what's been strange to me is like I was made fun of for eating dal you know spiced potatoes coated with turmeric and now it's so jarring to see like these like (laughs) to be frank like white ladies like claiming that they have invented the turmeric latte or discovered chai or Ayurveda, or anything resembling Indian culture. And it feels so unfair. Like, I was made fun of by by white people my whole life for my culture, and now they're profiting off of it? Like, that just doesn't feel... That doesn't feel right to me. And now I feel very lucky in that I feel like I have a platform. You know, I write for places like Bon Appetit and the New York Times, and I think I've just sort of eventually came to the realization, it's like, what good is this platform if you're not going to use it to affect change? Right. You had said, you know, that all that Ayurveda isn't just like white lady yoga instructors. Like, you know, they don't don't own the idea. Yep. And so, you know, part of popularizing or having people understand where you come from is understanding where all these things that are so trendy right now... Like yes. what the roots are. Yes. Because I, I feel like you feel like you're fighting some really frustrating racism, both in pitching stories and the stories that you get to write or you used to. How do you feel about that now? Now I, I, now I feel like I can sort of, I feel free to write about what I want. But for so long, I was really paralyzed with with fear, like that I couldn't write about anything other than Indian food and that I wasn't good enough to be an authority on anything other than Indian food. And it seemed to be what people were most interested in having me write about. But I think as I've developed as a writer and as I've sort of written stories that aren't about Indian food, I've established myself as someone who isn't a writer of Indian food, though I do write about Indian food, but just someone who writes about communities that I feel are underrepresented. And I feel like that's what I want to be known for. I mean, you absolutely are. It's been really fun just reading your pieces because they're so well-researched and they're so well-written. And they're really varied, you know? The stories about your family, of course, tug at my yeah. heartstrings. <laughs> Mine, <and> too. <laughs> your father and yogurt. Like, yeah. I'm, I now, I've never had any desire to make yogurt. Um, but after having read how yogurt sort of transformed your father and made him a bit of a cook, mm-hmm. I'm like, I could do that. Like, I think I could do that. It's so easy. It's so easy. Do you make yogurt? Um, sometimes I don't always have time. I travel so often that like, I can't eat the yogurt fast enough, but whenever I can, I try to make the yogurt. And my dad even brought his starter all the way from Dallas to New York. So I really have no excuse. No, his starter is in many, many kitchens Mm -hmm. from what I understand. Yes, it is. He freely gives it out. (laughs) He's a yogurt starter sharer. Uh, and when you were in, um, when you were in college, you went to Dartmouth and you studied uh, French and government, but you managed to make that somewhat about food as well. Totally. And almost like I was, I feel like I confused so many of my teachers, especially my government teachers. I wrote a piece for my class on the British empire on how, how tea built the British empire culturally and socially and politically. Um, I wrote a piece for a class on immigration about how, San Francisco, Chinatown was sort of critical to the assimilation of Chinese people in America and why those, it was called, it was called, we built this city on chop suey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I had a really amazing professor, Faith Beasley, um, in the French department. And I started in French one at Dartmouth. I'd never spoken a lick of French coming from Texas. I spoke Spanish and she, um, she and I both loved food and she designed a food, a French cuisine class. And I took that class and I felt really inspired and I ended up writing my thesis with her on food. And 
that's when I started realizing that I was I was very interested in studying food in an intellectual way. And I think that really shaped how I think about my stories now because I really do feel like I approach it almost from as an like an, as an academic study. That, that was the connection that I was making, right? Because you uh, sort of lived in fear is too strong a word, but you lacked confidence that people would hire you to write stories other than Indian because you got pigeonholed mm-hmm. a bit. Like, do what you know. Oh, you're Indian. Yeah. You must know Indian food. But um, but in fact, the the studying that you've done and the writing that you've done was really broad and uh, focusing on British culture, you know, mm-hmm. San Francisco. So you are primed. You are ready. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yes, 100%. And in some way, that gives you a lot of confidence. Like, you, you went really deeply on these topics. Yeah. I mean, you traveled to France and, yep. you know, wrote your thesis in French. So, um, I mean, not that French makes you, <laughs> that you made it, wrote it in French makes you any deeper, but your analysis was about taste. Yes. It's so funny. I, re- I like have that thesis sitting on my bookshelf and I read it and I'm just like, wow, I'm, <laughs> my French was so good back then. <laughs> it's definitely deteriorated. What was the thesis? Um, what was like, what was the title? Yeah, what was the, like the thought that went into it or the, um, so the idea was it traced the etymology of the word taste in French, which is, which is goo and basically looked at how, um, foods, food and eating started something is very scientific and, you know, nutritive and became this culture in and of itself with, with rules and values and expectations and how throughout history, the French have, use food to establish power in the case of Louis the 14th to create a democratic culture in the case of the rise of the restaurant. Um, and that eventually it ends with, um, UNESCO declared French cuisine, a world heritage site, which has never, you know, they never declared any kind of cuisine, a world heritage site. It felt like a very weird choice at first, but if you think about it, the French, um, have contributed so much to food culture and more so than contributed it, they were the best at writing it down. They codified everything. This is why, I mean, this is why the French brigade and the French sauces are as well known is because the French were writing stuff down, whereas a lot of other cultures were just passing these traditions on orally. And when you think about that thesis and you think about the word in French, but, um, taste and you apply it to Indian food and the history of um, India, India throughout the world and food like I know this is like on the fly, but I'm just curious like what do you think about that because you're so e- it's so yeah. easy for you to talk about the the French history and food. What do you think about Indian history and food? yeah I do I actually do have thought about this a lot like you know I contrast Indian cuisine and French cuisine a lot because I don't think that Indian food is definitely a tradition where things are not written down. Things are often passed down. Families are very guarded about their achar recipe, their dal recipe. It's not considered a good thing for that recipe to be everywhere, whereas in French culture, it's the opposite. Um, And I also think Indian food is so heavily regionalized and to the point where, you know, ask someone from Tamil Nadu to explain the cuisine of Gujarat, then they probably wouldn't be able to. There isn't as much cross-regional knowledge. Like I feel like I learn a new thing about Indian food every single day that I didn't know, and I and I and I can't help but think that maybe that's sort of part of the reason why Indian food is hasn't is is still waiting to sort of have its day in in, in mainstream Western world. But I'd like to think that. Books like mine and, you know, Nick Sharma's and Asha Gomez, like we're all writing this stuff down. We're all sort of spreading the good word, making videos, making sure this stuff and this knowledge is codified. You know, look at Floyd Cardoz's Bombay Bread Bar. He's teaching people what the food of Goa and what the food of Bombay is. And I think that's really important. I, I mean, I love um, all those people you mentioned. Are yeah. Super talented. And it is fantastic to have it codified and um written down i'm sure that there's something about the um like the empire indian empire and Mm -hmm. food and it's uh, the british empire and the dissemination of food that we don't have to get into here Uh, okay so i'm trying something new on this podcast i want you to teach me something um you have to teach to me in words which is really hard and the thing that i actually want you to teach me which you're gonna think is crazy Uh is how to fold a pair of pants oh amazing 
wow, this is really taking me back. So, um, you know, because your mom folded, you had to fold 100, like 100 pair of pants um, to know how to do it properly. And I always want to know how to fold a pair of pants. So how do you do it? Um, So the key is, well, first, my mom said what's really important is you have to zip up the zipper and button the buttons. This sort of helps keep like the structural integrity of the pants. It's sort of the same reason why like when you take off a pair of boots and you unzip them, you have to zip them right back up. Didn't know that. Okay. That's really important. Um, and then the thing that she always taught us is that you take the pair of pants and instead of the, the tendency is to just want to fold them like this. That's what I do. So that's folding them in half to edge to edge. But she said that is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to, uh, is to do it the opposite way. Like take this and go like, so that it's like the, Oh, you take the, the you make the the middle and the back align. You put those together so that you're creating those creases Okay, you create creases, and then what happens? Um, And then you uh, fold it in half, and then you fold it in half again. And then you, like, she had this thing that, like, you basically just, like, straighten out the sides until it's just, like, a very, like, neat trapezoid. And that is how she taught us to fold pants. Okay, thank you. Um, (laughs) I just, I'm going to test it. I love learning something new every day. And the, and the cooking, like, I can learn from your cookbook. I can, I feel like I'm going to be able to cook Indian food. And it's going to be really delicious. But how to fold pants, that's much harder. Uh, and at the end of the show, I always like to pay it forward to a woman in food and hospitality. Someone who you admire and you think doesn't get enough recognition. So who would that be? Um, that would be Lagaya Michan. Uh, who does the Hungry City column in the New York Times. She is hands down one of my all-time favorite food writers. She writes in this poetic, totally unique way that is like no other food writer could ever write the way that she does. And I feel like sometimes when we think about like New York Times critics, we're like everyone's obsessed with like Pete and his reviews and they're amazing. But not only is Lagaya's writing amazing, but she's sort of on a mission to highlight the amazing immigrant communities in New York. And I just find that mission and everything she does really amazing. That's great. That's this episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you, Priya, for joining me. And um, I encourage all of you to go out and buy Indianish, cook from it, share the love, and make your own family. I think that you know, Priya's inspiration of a 30 people who get along, who support each other, <laughs> who share share recipes and will turn up at a moment's notice, whether it's like food or travel or heartbreak, uh, is something that we can all learn from. If people want to find you um, on social, where do they find you? Um, on Twitter and Instagram at PK Gourmet, G-O-U-R-M-E-T. And you know where to find me at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. If there's anyone you think that I should interview, uh, just DM me. I'm always curious. If you have thoughts or comments about the show, let me know. And if you like it, like the show, subscribe where you can subscribe to podcasts everywhere. So iTunes, um, Stitcher, Heritage. We'd love to have you as part of the Speaking Broadly family. And that's it for today. Have a really great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.